in, in, in your research, what's the significance, the, the impact that you put in your research on Frederick's own writings? Um, and, and how much do you emphasis do you put on his relationship with his father, which is always described as extremely abusive? It's two parts of the question. His own writings as part of the primary research and then the whole psychological relationship that he has uh, with his father. Well, there are two separate issues there. Yes. Um, the first one, um, Frederick is author. Um, I can deal with, I think, relatively, relatively briefly. Uh, he was a, a most prolific author. He just could not stop writing. Uh, and his collected works run to oh, dozens and dozens of volumes. They're almost all online, incidentally, for those of you who are interested. Um, uh, writing in the French language. I mean, German, he, of course he could speak and read and write German, um, but he regarded it as an, in, as an inferior language, um, which he used when speaking to his servants. Um, French was the language he used to compose and also to dream in. Uh, so uh, he 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 wrote um, he wrote a huge amount of verse, huge amounts of verse. He was very fluent, very prolific, and um, uh, well, of course, he lived by the standards of the day to a great age. He was seventeen, born in seventeen twelve, died in seventeen eighty six. So he was a very old man by the standards of the day. So he had, uh, although he's very busy as well, he had extraordinary energy and this extraordinary fluency. I mean, he just sat down with a bit of paper and his stuff just poured out of him. Um, he also wrote, he wrote verse, he wrote poetry, he wrote history, he wrote epigrams, um, he wrote political pamphlets, which some people think can be elevated to the status of political philosophy, though, to be honest, it's not very profound. Um, and, uh, and, and I haven't read every word. I don't think anyone could without going potty. But um, it's, to be honest with you, it's not very good. Some of it, some of the, uh, some of the poetry, the verse is um, repetitive and uh, long-winded and um, not very elegant. Uh, he was a great friend of Voltaire. Um, this is one of the reasons why he made such a hit with contemporaries and posterity, because the most famous writer of his day. Uh, he and Voltaire corresponded from the late seventh, when Frederick was still a young man, right, or right until uh, Voltaire, right, right until Voltaire died. <clears throat> it was a very troubled relationship. Voltaire came to Potsdam, where Frederick had a palace, two palaces in fact, uh, and stayed there for three years. It was, and it all ended in tears. I mean, they were both really quite unpleasant people, quite spiteful, and um, it was a, a relationship which was destined to be extremely difficult. And eventually, it broke down. Then it resumed a bit. But um, anyway, um, Voltaire um, had a huge influence on Frederick, and Frederick wanted to be like Voltaire. He wanted to be admired by Voltaire. Kept on sending him stuff to read. Uh, and Voltaire was unwise enough to observe that um, he did wish that the King of Prussia would stop sending him his dirty laundry to be cleaned. Because Frederick, although his French was very fluent, um, he made mistakes. Um, Voltaire did not make mistakes, pretty obviously. So um, you can see the mistakes still today. You don't need to be a, a perfect, um, have perfect command of the French language to see. He made, he, he made, he made mistakes. So there's Voltaire, um, as a, was like a schoolmaster, correcting, um, polishing up uh, Frederick's, Frederick's pr prose and verse. 
So um, it, it, it is a remarkable oeuvre, not only in its um, uh, quantity, perhaps I've been a bit unkind about its quality. Some of it um, does hit the spot, especially I think the histories are very good. Although it's very biased, because Frederick glosses over his failures and talks up his his triumphs, of which there were quite a number, um, but you don't need to read very much of it to in, to to appreciate that, that there is a a powerful and original mind at work here. Uh, some of it's derivative, but um, much of it is of is of is of high is of high quality and can be read for pleasure. Um, Again, it's, it's, it's witty and it's, it's quite spiteful, very anti-clerical, takes a lot from Volta, very anti-Christian. Um, but quite a lot of it is fun. Yeah, it's, it's worth a read. And, uh, and, sorry, and, the, and the second part the, of the, the question, one, the relationship with his, with his father. Oh, with his father. Well, yes, you, you, I think you used the word abusive. Well, it certainly was an abusive relationship. Uh, his father was a beast. There's no other, you can't get away from it. Part of the problem was that he was ill. He suffered from porphyria. Very likely, that's the that's the most likely diagnosis that he settled suffered from porphyria. Uh, and every now and again, he succumbed to a bout which almost killed him. And eventually, he did kill him in 1740. He wasn't very old. So he, I don't think he was 50. Uh, sorry, I'm not too good on dates, but he was still a relatively young man. Um, but it meant that he was often in pain. Uh, and certainly, he, even if he hadn't had this condition, I think he, by his by his nature, by his very personality, very short-tempered. He's a little round man, um, very short-tempered, very irritable, prone to fits of uncontrollable anger when he used he was handy with his fists I mean beat his children um, and Frederick he really did not like he wanted Frederick to be uh, well what did he want him to be he wanted him to be so he says anyway first and foremost a devout Calvinist Christian uh, Frederick William I was a really God-fearing person he could not accept predestination. That was simply too awful for him because he probably knew that by the standards of the Christian gospel, he was doomed. Um, he couldn't accept that. But in other respects, he was a very devout Calvinist Christian. So he wanted Frederick to be brought up as one, which he was. And Frederick had um, the Bible and other religious works stuffed into him from a very early age. He also wanted him to be very Spartan and economical, like Frederick William I was, who was hardly ever seen out of uniform, never out of uniform in the last 20 years of his life. He also wanted him to be a man, uh, and that meant being fond of manly things, like hunting. Frederick William I was a terrific nimrod. He, he hunted every day and all day. Slight exaggeration, obviously, but not much. And he wanted him, and this is a quite, this is how we got to a very tricky subject, but it's there. He also, of course, wanted him to be heterosexual, to get married, and to procreate. That was the top job for a crown prince. That was the first thing you needed to do, get him married, uh, get an heir and a spare, and get the succession guaranteed. Well, 
I could go on, but that's enough to be going on with, I think. Uh, well, Frederick was none of those things. <laughs> uh, he wasn't devout. He he probably stopped believing um, in Christianity even before he became an adolescent. Uh, and, and then all this stuff which had been fought, with which he'd been force-fed, he then has a massive reaction against it. And um, right throughout his oeuvre, you can find constant jibes at what he regarded as um, absurd superstition. So that was the, that was the first thing. Um, Frederick was not economical. He wasn't Spartan. He loved luxury. He liked uh, silk dressing gowns. He liked the company of uh, his mother. He liked to play the flute. Um, and um, he didn't like manly things like hunting. He was one of the very few um, of his contemporary rule of contemporary rulers who didn't hunt. Uh, not only did he not hunt, he disliked it intensely. Uh, and um, and oh, I've got an error message. I hope this is not going to cause us problems. Oh, meeting. Oh, we've been upgraded. Right, that's good. Yes, um, yes we're, we're good. No, he didn't like hunting. And in uh, in his pamphlet Anti Machiavel, he writes um, a, quite a passionate diatribe against hunting, which is very, which was very unusual for any upper class uh, European. And, and yet and he's he a military a man. And, and yet he's a military man. He's a military leader and a successful. I'll come back. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Yes. Um, but, but there's one I have to I have to point this out, although a certain kind of German historian doesn't like doing it. Is that Frederick was almost certainly homosexual, but he—he, I think he was homosexual. There's, there's no direct evidence that he ever engaged um, uh, in homosexual acts, but I think he probably did. Actually, it's all in the book. Um, I've tried to be uh, as objective as possible uh, uh, about uh, about that, so you can see that uh, this is uh, as he grows up, as Frederick William the First discovers what what he what he what he's like all these various characteristics, Frederick William I came to hate him and despise him and punish him physically, mentally, um, psychologically. It was a deeply abusive relationship. Now, I, I, I quite understand why you should have wanted him to interrupt that point, because Frederick became a military man. Yep. So out of this abusive mess comes Frederick when he comes to the throne at the age of 28, um, he's able to indulge everything which his father had put a stop to. So he can engage in luxuries, he can order a new opera house, uh, get the best singers, um, he can go off with his boyfriend uh, and so on. He can make his valet um, a noble and, so, and all that stuff. You know, he was free, he could do all that. But at the back of his mind, and probably somewhere in the middle, possibly in the front, he has this ambition to be what his father had not been. And that was a successful military man. Frederick William I had been a real right militarist. He had devoted every last penny he could scrape together on increasing the size and quality of his army. And he had succeeded in that. He had created what was man for man, the most effective army in Europe, as Frederick was about to demonstrate after 1740, but he'd never used it. 
It turned out that when it came to foreign policy, to asserting Prussia's interests in Europe, he was extraordinarily, well, timid is too strong, but certainly reticent. And so this military machine he created was never used. So what I think, uh, and this of course is obviously speculation uh, here, what Frederick comes out in 1740 is in this key aspect of kingship, the assertion of the power of the state through military means in that key assignment of kingship, Frederick was going to do what his father hadn't done and to be much more successful as a military commander, to take risks, uh, to destroy these, to destroy his enemies, to elevate Prussia to be a great power. And he succeeds in that. Frederick, okay. Frederick um, it, it seems, viewed himself as relationship with Voltaire as, as a supporter of enlightenment. Uh, how does that self-image find expression in his policies towards minorities and specifically towards the Jewish people during his reign? Yes, what a good question, uh, and, a, and a very important one. Well, in one respect, his enlightenment, and uh, he, he certainly was enlightened um, in, in the sense that he read huge amounts of enlightened literature. Pierre Bayle was probably the greatest influence on him after Voltaire, perhaps even more important than Voltaire. So he's um, immersed in the literature of the early enlightenment. And that did have an effect. He turned Prussia into, in terms of religious affiliation within Christianity, important qualification, he turned uh, Prussia into the most tolerant state in Europe, more tolerant even than the Dutch Republic or contemporary England, which were de facto relatively tolerant to religious minorities. And Frederick said, I, I, I just do not give a fig about which particular brand of superstitious nonsense uh, a person might subscribe to. They, they, can, they, can, all, they can all come here. <clears throat> and if Turks want to come here, I'd build them a mosque. And he, he demonstrated that in an architectural way, which you still see in Berlin today. He created for Catholics. I mean, remember, this is a, a Calvinist, or it's, it's a state which is populated mainly by Lutherans ruled by Calvinists. Um, he created for the Catholics uh, a cathedral on land which he gave himself, uh, St. Hedwig's Cathedral, which is behind the opera house um, in the center of Berlin. So that was a that was a, a fairly dramatic gesture. And when the Jesuit order was closed down in 1773, the Jesuits were expelled from uh, the Habsburg monarchy. He welcomed them into Prussia. He said, oh, you can come and teach my Catholics. Um, they're, they're well-educated people. So um, from that point of view, uh, the Enlightenment clearly had an impact. But I'm afraid it did not extend to the Jews. There weren't a huge number of Jews in Prussia. They'd been expelled as periodically as elsewhere in Europe. They had been expelled in the early 17th century and then allowed back in uh, by Frederick the Great's great-grandfather, Frederick William the Great Elector. There are, oh golly, I forgot the figure, just a few hundred in Berlin. 
but they were um, punching above their weight because they proved to be exceptionally enterprising. They were engaged in uh, manufacturing. They were engaged in financial enterprises. Um, of course, they were not allowed to buy land, so they're not involved in agriculture. Um, and indeed, that's one of the reasons why Frederick William the Great Elector had let them back in in the 1670s, because he, he needed their money. I mean, that's, that's I'm afraid that's what, that was generally the case when Jews were tolerated, when they were when their assets were acquired and their skills were acquired. Uh, and Frederick made good use of their financial skills, for example, when he was organizing the debasement of the coinage in the Seven Years in the Seven Years War. Uh, so far, so good. So he 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 doesn't actually expel um, the Jews from Prussia, but he did tighten the screws. He made it more difficult for Jews to come to Prussia and more specifically to Berlin. So Jews wishing to move to Berlin would have to prove that they had a certain uh, and quite a substantial capital. The, the last thing he wanted were penniless Jews coming over the border from Poland. Um, so um, it, it, he, he discriminates them by imposing artificial restrictions on their numbers. And he also continues and intensifies uh, traditional forms of discrimination and invents one himself. Uh, that was the requirement that um, any Jew wishing to get married, and that was quite an exercise incidentally, it took Moses Mendelssohn, for example, a long time to get permission to, to marry. Uh, any Jewish couple wishing to get married would were required uh, to buy a certain amount of porcelain from the royal manufactory, which was... Uh, the apple of Frederick's eye, uh, and that amount of porcelain increased. And um, uh, my friend Jonathan Steinberg, uh, whose father was a rabbi, New York rabbi, tells me that um, still in New York today, um, to, to have a piece of, of porcelain which was, has been handed down um, by uh, immigrants from what had been Prussia is, are still specially valued, um, which is a rather, rather, um, rather touching, I suppose. Um, reflection of that. So um, Frederick was discriminated against the Jews um, and uh, that was a reflection I think. I mean he was personally anti-Semitic. He was prone to making all kinds of anti-Semitic remarks. Um, we don't need them, don't want them, um, want to get rid of them, um, give, all that, uh, give all their businesses to Christians. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's personally hostile. He gets a lot of that from Voltaire, who's notoriously anti-Semitic. Uh, but that much of that comes from, I think probably almost entirely comes, it's, it's part of the anti-Christian agenda. So that they're at, by attacking, attacking the Jews through the Old Testament, they're also attacking the Christians of the New Testament, who of course look to the Old Testament as well. So it, it's part of that anti-Christian anti-Christian package, anti-clerical, anti-Christian package. So you would... You would However, so you would, um, yeah. none of this... I'm sorry. No, no, so it's fine, yeah. No, go on. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a quick little would, 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 you, would you say that... What that would you say that, that those attitudes were similar or different from his arch-rival Maria Theresa's attitude, where, where she just couldn't... I mean, when she spoke... When she needed to speak to a Jewish representative, she had a curtain 
you could look at them. It sounds like it's, it, there's some similarities, but there's also some fundamental differences in their attitudes. There are some similarities. I expect you've been talking to Barbara Stolberg Rielinger, uh, who yes. knows all about Maria Theresa, written, written a yes. wonderful, wonderful book about yes. her. Yes, we yes. Well, I know. I think there are there are serious uh, differences here. Uh, uh, Maria Theresia was um, anti-Semitic in a way that Frederick wasn't, because of course she was a devout, devout Catholic, um, and indeed expelled uh, the Jews from Prague um, in 1745. Uh, I forget. I forget the date. Now, December, December own... 44, beginning of January 45. Correct. Correct. Oh, I was almost on the bottom. Huh? Very good. Okay. Uh, yes, I. Well, I think there is um, there 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 is a real difference, uh, including the example you've just given of the physical physical repugnance. Um, no, I I I I don't think there's there's much similarity. Well, no, there was there. Obviously, of course, there are similarities, uh, but Frederick never actually expelled um, Jews from Prussia. That was that was never they were too useful to him. Um, Frederick's attitude is much more like that of Joseph II, Maria Theresa's son. I mean, Joseph emancipated the Jews and was much more thoroughgoing in that regard than Frederick had been and uh, issues an emancipation edict when Maria Theresa has died in 1780 and he's got full control of his state. But why did he do it? He did it so that he could assimilate the Jews into his state and make his state more efficient. Uh, and collect more taxes. And so he insists, for example, that although the Jews may now be uh, um, may be assimilated, they must also serve in the in the Habsburg army. Uh, and um, some members of the Jewish community in Vienna and elsewhere in the Habsburg army were awfully keen on that. You have you get a say, you get a similar situation in France after the. Um, uh, after the revolution has emancipated the Jews. That, that was one thing, but conscription into the army was another. But so with Joseph, I mean, he was kind of hard-headed rationalist who did everything in the interests of, uh, of uh, state efficiency. What's, what's uh, the sorry, mess? There was a little, can I just add a, quite an important one about, about <laughs> the Jews? And that is, yeah, okay, well, I promise it won't take a couple of minutes, but it's, but it's very important to note this, that Although Frederick discriminates against the Jews um, in all kinds of ways and is personally very hostile, his reign was marked by uh, a remarkable increase in the number of Jews in Berlin and also uh, in qualitative terms, uh, Berlin becomes the centre of the Jewish enlightenment in Europe. Um, or, or so I believe. I'm not an expert on this particular. I mean, no, you know, clearly, I clearly, clearly. Uh, so... I mean, Moses Mendelssohn becomes a, a, a towering figure in uh, European Jewry then and, 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 sub and subsequently. And he actually um, wrote, uh, had a high opinion uh, of um, Frederick the Great in, in, in some respects. And there's a quote, which is often is in my book, uh, and is often paraded as, as an example of how Frederick, for all his shortcomings in this department, was nevertheless admired, perhaps even venerated by Moses Mendelssohn, because he had created a culture in Berlin uh, where it was possible for Jews to uh, write books, to edit and publish magazines, periodicals. Uh, of course, we take that for granted, but it was certainly 
wouldn't have been taken for granted in Europe at that time. Sorry, I just wanted to add that. No, no, very, very good. What's the, what's the message that you try to convey to students, to young people, when, when you teach them these subjects? Um, what, what's, the, what's the message? Like, what are you trying to, to show to them from all your research? I'm going to disappoint you there. I'm afraid I don't have a message to convey. Okay. I don't see histories teaching anything. Okay. Uh, I see uh, history as um, as a discipline, as an intellectual discipline, in which one can apply one's objective as objective as possible. Uh, one can apply one's objective judgment, uh, criticism to the sources never to take anything on trust, always to ask for whom, why was it written, for whom was it written, if we're talking about um, a written publication, uh, to, to deploy one's critical faculties. Uh, but this, it's, it's, in other words, it's a message about methodology, but it's not a message about substance. Interesting. Okay. Very, very good. Okay. Um... Again, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Is there anything else you would like to, to add? I mean, I think, you know, we tried to cover different areas. Yeah, we go on. I, I, I understand that. As you can tell, I can go well, on. Well, that, that's what I would highly well, recommend. I would highly recommend the great. And, and, you know, you can purchase it. It's, it's, a one- it's a German translation, too. Okay. For those in the audience that will prefer the, uh, the, the, the German. Um, so again, thank you very much, Professor Blanning. This was really enlightening and insightful and fascinating. Appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you.